This is Target 1.5, a mini-series of podcasts designed to help you play your part in limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. If we don't start to avert the climate crisis now, all kinds of things will be at risk. Our food, our water, our leisure, and most of all, our safety. But there's still time to fix this. And as we lead up to COP26, we're finding out how businesses and key industries have become more sustainable by changing the way they do business. And we'll be sharing exclusive advice and guidance to help you do the same. I'm your host, Will Richardson. With me is Senior Environmental Management Consultants, Alex Cronin. And in this episode, the focus is on law and the legal sector. There are over 10,000 law firms in the UK. So what systems and practices can they use to become more environmentally sustainable? Someone who's a fair way down that track is Alex Rhodes, the head of purpose and a partner at Mishkondorea. Why, in his view, should law firms take a lead? Law firms are incredibly powerful organisations in in the context of climate change. They are businesses that use the law. And the law, of course, governs how we behave and how we act, the rules that that we follow. And so I think law firms have a very important part to play, in, particularly in relation to climate change. The most effective steps I think that firms need to take are, first of all, to commit to understand what their relationship with climate change with the environment is and and where they want to draw that line between their business and their responsibilities and the the level of accountability they want to have with the challenge and and following from that i think there's a a reasonably clear set of um, steps the first is to footprint or to understand one's impacts and that requires measuring things that firms, indeed, like most of their clients, haven't measured before, uh, or certainly haven't measured in a in an impact-led way before. Uh, the second is to set targets and then to take actions. For us as a firm, we uh, we undertook a, a, a detailed carbon footprinting process supported by Green Element. We use their software, Compare Your Footprint, to. Um, manage our carbon reduction process, so to monitor on an ongoing basis our our emissions from our activities. We're learning while we're going, and we're creating the metrics to allow us to do that ever more accurately. But for us, the four key areas, or four of the key areas, I suppose, are um, arising from our office space and thinking about our energy, um, and 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 uh, particularly the electricity that comes in and then how we use our energy and using it most efficiently related to paper and paper use and for for lawyers of course that's not just small amounts of paper and that's not just paper sitting in the office it's also the conveyance of paper from one place to another to courts and back travel and international travel and commuting are important components and then finally our supply chain and so uh, looking at our supply chain, looking at how we can work with our suppliers and our other stakeholders to drive change. And for law firms, there's there's a good community there. I mean, there's a good community of law firms anyway um, in amongst themselves. But specifically around uh, around climate change, there are in- initiatives that, that, that are appearing. The Net Zero Lawyers Alliance, for example, was launched during Climate Action Week for London. 
And um, our firm, working with some other firms, has recently just launched a thing called the Greener Litigation Pledge, in which firms commit to think about the way in which they run litigation to reduce emissions. Um, and that's coming out of COVID, actually, uh, thinking about the procedures around litigation, remote hearing, the use of remote um, um, hearings and remote witness attendance at, at, at trials uh, and, and interlocutory hearings, and um, the use of paper and digital bundles and paper bundles. I think final, the final thing that firms can do, and this goes back to the beginning of what I was saying, is to think about how they work with their clients uh, to help their clients uh, reduce their emissions in, in, their, in their businesses uh, as well. Alex has made some excellent points there and has highlighted why the legal sector shouldn't just implement sustainable practices, but also take on a leadership role within this space. Let's explore this point in more detail. Alex Cronin, how important or powerful are law firms in terms of tackling climate change? Well, frankly, very powerful. So as a professional services firm, the impact is relatively low from their direct operations, such as their buildings or own transport, compared to some other industries. But similar to finance, banking, consulting, marketing, through the influence of their work, it really eclipses their direct impact. I want to mention a few examples of groups that are really taking the sector forward, who I really respect. So Client Earth are the first one, who's an environmental law charity, whose explicit purpose is to use their legal expertise to uphold and shape laws. Some examples of what they've done recently include filing a shareholder lawsuit against a Polish utility company, which resulted in the suspension of a planned coal plant, or representing eight Indigenous Australians from the Torres Strait Islands at the UN in making a complaint against the Australian government. It was here that they alleged that failure to act on climate change is violating their fundamental human rights. Client Earth are absolutely phenomenal with the work that they're doing, aren't they? I mean, they are such a powerful organisation turning our own laws against our governments in preparation for reducing that impact. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing that they're holding pretty much all levels of government from local to federal uh, to account in terms of their climate action, but also representing uh, underrepresented groups on the biggest stage in the world. Yeah. I, be I believe that the Polish utility company, they literally bought $10 worth of shares. That was it. It's amazing what they can do through that. So who else is in this space? So the second one I want to mention is the Chancery Lane Project. So they're a collective of lawyers working pro bono who produce clauses that align contracts with net zero goals. So really making sure that the focus is on this and the supply chain from the beginning. The next one that I wanted to mention was the Net Zero Lawyers Alliance. And they are a coalition aiming to improve the legal sector's capacity to assist with reaching net zero by 2050. This involves improving internal operations, but also training lawyers to support clients in the transition to a zero carbon society. Those are three really powerful organizations, aren't they? Yeah, it just goes to show that the real sphere of influence goes just beyond the internal impacts of a law firm. But there's also ways that people can get involved in their practice. Is there anything more you wanted to add? Yeah, so next I wanted to address what Alex Rhodes mentioned about uh, what legal firms can actually do themselves to address global heating in their operations. This usually follows three steps. 
The first one being uh, starting with the measuring of your carbon footprint. So this is important as it provides a picture of where the impact of your operations and supply chain currently exists. His second piece of advice was to set targets. So setting verified science-based targets mentioned in episode one of this series demonstrates the highest level of credibility. Targets can also be set based on individual aspirations, but this will not be aligned with the latest climate science. Alex's third and final step was about taking action. So this could be prioritized based on impacts that can be achieved, focusing on the areas of highest emissions from your organization's footprint, but also the ability to implement the action. As far as law firms go, Mishkondorea have taken more action than most. Let's hear what they've done. So Mishkon has, um, has, has for a long time taken action on reducing its environmental impact. I mean, for, for many years, we have been uh, zero to landfill with our waste. Um, we have made sure that our electricity supply comes from renewable sources and taken other actions through the firm um, all the way through to two years ago, providing every member of staff with a uh, with, with a water bottle to support us getting rid of drinking cups through the offices. But more recently, what we have done is we have moved um, to a, a really focused impacts-led approach, which is which is looking at measurement. And in relation to the environmental impact of the firm, we have used the B Corp process to understand our environmental impacts and uh, the the metrics that we need to to measure to to to, to identify and act on those, and uh, in relation to climate change and our emissions, we started off by footprinting um, our carbon emissions across what are known as scopes one, two, and three: our direct emissions, uh, the emissions that come from our electricity supply or our energy supply, and our indir- indirect emissions. And then we have set targets. So the first part is measuring, so you actually understand uh, what your what your emissions are, what your uh, other impacts are. The second is setting targets, so that you can act and drive change towards achieving those. Uh, and then in that process, very importantly, we have begun to build in processes of monitoring and reporting against those targets uh, to to enable us to to, to achieve our commitment to having a positive environmental impact. The reason we're taking such um, strong action on, on, on our environmental impact, in fact, on our social impact as well, is because it's an imperative. Uh, in, the con- in the context of climate change, we, we all know that we have to strive to reduce global warming to one and a half degrees. And there is a very clear pathway for business to follow to do that. Um, and uh, in, in our view, good business means doing good through business. Uh, this for us comes down to our purpose as a business, although why we exist. Um, last year, we changed our charter, our, um, our partnership agreement, uh, to include in the objects of the firm um, the the important object to have a positive impact on the environment and on society through our business and uh, acting on climate change is a fundamental part of that. I think the most surprising discovery that's on this journey has been the degree to which uh, people right across the firm have got on board with what we're what we're trying to do 
uh, from uh, an environmental and social impact point of view and a recognition that this is not CSR, corporate social responsibility, something other than our core business, nor is it in competition with the profit motive in our business or in how we best serve our clients' interests, but actually that this is a fundamental part of our business and of the success of our business, and that the more we get it right, the stronger our business will be. It's really encouraging to hear Mishcon are taking these effective and scientifically endorsed steps to tackle climate change. It's particularly good to hear about their successes, which has been achieved through top leadership buy-in at Mishkondorea. Alex talks about purpose being a critical part of their business. How have they seen this demonstrated in the legal sector, Alex? So Alex mentioned that purpose isn't in competition with the profit motive in their business, which realistically will assist in the wider uptake of sustainability as a whole. So in terms of serving clients' interests as well, there's been a huge growth in firms offering ESG and sustainability as a practice area. And this is because the demand from clients to advise the firms in this area have grown. We're also seeing a big demand for this grow because clients are wanting to work and align with really good companies. And B Corp is one essential way that an organization can demonstrate this because it really focuses on all aspects of sustainability beyond the environment, including human rights, uh, procurement, their supply chain, as well as the work they do with their people internally. So is it all working for Mishkondorea? Maybe you should ask me that question in another six months and then every three months going forward from now on, because that's what we're trying to ask ourselves as we're, as we're going through this journey. The steps that one needs to take are fundamentally changes to, to the way one runs one's business. And I think the major change that we have made is one uh, of, of looking at the impact of our actions and then trying to then assess our progress and the success of the actions that we're taking against those targets. And, and I'll give you an example. Um, before, we, um, before we really started on the, on, on the measurement proper uh, several years ago, there was an inherent unhappiness within the firm with the fact that we still had plastic cups in some areas of our offices, um, plastic disposable cups. And such was the level of unhappiness that um, we felt that we had to address it. But we hadn't yet really managed to build enough of a factual base to assess the steps that we should have taken. And so we discussed, for example, well, should we stop with the plastic cups and instead get ceramic cups? And those ceramic cups can then be washed through a dishwasher uh, and then put back on the mantelpiece. And then we start, started uh, asking the question, well, okay, but how much uh, energy was expended and what was the environmental impact of making the ceramic cup in the first place? And, and, and how much of an environmental impact is there in running the washing machine every night to wash all these cups that are being used when they wouldn't otherwise have been used, i.e. is the obvious ill of having disposable plastic cups greater or smaller than the apparently better course of having ceramic cups in the office? 
And you can only answer those questions by really diving into the weeds um, as you as you go. Now, for us, what we actually ended up doing was we ended up providing all of our staff with with reusable water bottles um, and and effectively got rid of the cup uh, stroke stroke uh, mug office uh, issue altogether. But 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 the fundamental the fundamental piece is. Uh, if you're going to be serious about getting on top of your environmental impacts, you have to understand the implications of the steps that you take. That's a really good point, actually. You have to understand the implications of the steps you take, particularly when it comes to the environment. Absolutely. It's not easy to make decisions regarding sustainable choices. And there are so many potential conflicts due to secondary impacts that may not be considered. So using your carbon footprint and emissions provides a way that organizations can make decisions based on figures and numbers similar to what they would do using accounting. So does one action have a lower impact related to another, which can easily be quantified and compared? The single-use cups versus ceramic debate is a really relatable example of this and sets it out perfectly simply. If both are used one time, then the single-use cup has a much lower impact. But over a longer period of time, the benefits of the ceramic mug far outweigh the individual impact. While this may add to the requirements that an organization needs to consider and murky the water slightly, it's really important to note that emissions are not the only metric of an action's impact. So considering other things such as the reuse and recyclability of your items and actions is important, as well as considering human rights issues within their supply chain. So working with really good companies who are doing good things, both with their products and with their people. This leads us nicely into a really important area of the legal sector, honest communication. Over the last year, greenwashing is a theme that's gained more and more traction, for all the wrong reasons. We spoke to a comms consultant, John Brown, back in June, and he said that greenwashing is a genuine threat to sustainability because businesses are marketing greenwashed claims that other businesses are copying. The knock-on effect is that the real, effective actions are drowned out by greenwashed claims and make the real action look greenwashed. The result is everyone's confused and then annoyed when they invest in the wrong thing, which creates apathy and disconnects from sustainability. Alex Rhodes. Greenwashing, of course, is the, the process of conveying a, a false impression or providing misleading information to consumers uh, about how a company uh, how a company is providing its services uh, or, or, or products, and it's a, it's been a t- it's a term that's been around for a long time, of course. And I, I think I, I, or I understand anyway that it was uh, actually coined in 1986 by um, an American environmentalist who went to stay at a hotel, and there was a badge that said, "If you don't want us to wash your towels tonight." please put them on the bed to lessen our, uh, our impact on the environment at the same time as they were building out the resort across the, the, local, um, the local reef. So, so the, the understanding of greenwashing has been around for, for, for a long time, of course. I think the focus on it has become far greater recently. And it is a serious risk to businesses. It's, if you like, a double sin. It's not only not acting on the environmental impacts of a business, but it is then uh, seeking to say that you are doing so when you know that you're not. So it is a 
it, it goes right to the integrity of of the business and and is, is telegraphic to to reputation, which is why it's so dangerous um, for for businesses to dabble in that. Whether whether that is deliberate or whether that is unwitting. So 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 greenwashing is a so greenwashing is a major risk. Also, it is endemic, and the European Commission um, uh, recently undertook a piece of work. Uh, which it published uh, uh, earlier this year, in which it found that 42% of all green claims in European companies' marketing materials were either exaggerated, uh, false, or deceptive. So there is a large problem here in in, in the greenwashing space. In terms of how the law um, is addressing greenwashing, uh, there are several different regimes that are engaged. And, and these include, uh, in the UK, for example, the Advertising Standards Authority. The existing codes provide um, that the basis of environmental claims must be clear, um, that absolute claims must be supported with a high degree of substantiation, um, that claims must relate to the full life cycle of products, um, and, and, and so on. But those codes are currently under review by the ASA, and they, they, they have an ongoing uh, climate change uh, and the environment project, which is looking at reviewing the codes and the way that the ASA will look at claims made by businesses. The Competition and Markets Authority, similarly, is looking at this issue. In the European context, uh, the Europeans, uh, the, the European Commission is looking at this as part of its 2020 Circular um, Economy Action Plan, uh, which forms a uh, part of the suite of regulations uh, that it is rolling out around sustainability at the moment. And and I think the last I was going to mention was OECD, and you asked for a concrete example of a of a case. And and, and a good case here is um, Client Earth's complaint about BP's Possibilities Everywhere advertising campaign uh, in 2019. Client Earth, of course, being a, a, a charity um, that uh, seeks to use the law to drive change to address environmental harms, but particularly climate change. Um, and uh, Client Earth complained that this advert by BP gave the impression that BP was a renewable energy or predominantly a re renewable energy company at the time when it still devotes you know, over 90% over of its spending to oil and gas projects. So the law is developing and... Uh, the law is being used actively uh, to hold companies to account. Alex was talking there about how the legal space is reacting to greenwashing. How can we as individuals and organisations look out for misleading claims and avoid being a part of the problem? Yeah, well, it's really interesting because there is such an increase of focus on this space. So what should we look out for? The main thing is claims that can't be substantiated or that would be misleading to people who were seeing it for the first time. Alex mentioned a recent example that the ASA has focused on in terms of cracking down. And they've also announced that in future, they're gonna be looking to research more into net zero and carbon neutral claims, or things that are similar to 100% recyclability uh, when that actually isn't the case. So in terms of reporting, if you need to go that far, this can be done through the ASA website using the normal complaints process. In terms of consequences for the environment and for organizations themselves, by making unsubstantiated or incorrect claims, 
essentially it's reversing any positive action that the client may have taken because their reputation will be indefinitely damaged. So yeah, it really highlights that the fact that all of your organization needs to be tied up in terms of your messaging, as well as your action on climate change. Because if one area of your organization is really focusing on making improvements to your products or your, your services, for example, but then you're also making unsubstantiated claims in public, then that can really, really turn back the clock on the actions that you've taken. And of course, it's really important to ensure that it's not just your organisation that's taking real steps to address the climate emergency, but also your supply chain. I mean, think about it. If your supply chain isn't sustainable, then how can you be? This is an area of focus for Mishkondorea. Look, there are always more things. Uh, and I, we recognise that we're on a journey. Uh, and, and I think we, we recognise that we're learning. The best approach, we believe, is to understand as best you can what your impacts are. Um, and we're still improving on that. Um, one of the big challenges um, is actually understanding what your environmental impacts are. And those are not just your environmental, your direct environmental impacts in a business. It, they're also the impacts that come from your supply chain. So, uh, for, for example, half of the emissions, the, 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 the carbon dioxide equivalent of emissions of our firm come from our bought goods and services, i.e. from our supply chain. And the majority of those um, emissions are related to the IT hardware that we use. Now, we have a very conscientious procurement department, an IT department that has for, for a long time had built into its procurement processes um, environmental awareness and environmental thinking. But fundamentally, we can't run our business without computers. And so the reduction on the emissions related to the computers that we use can only be driven by us to a certain degree. It also has to be driven by the, the, by the businesses that make the computers. And if you look at the actions that are being taken uh, by Microsoft and others, uh, to address their 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 um, uh, climate impact, um, you can see that this cascade or this working all the way through the supply chain is so important for each firm to be able to uh, meet its own objectives. So it's a collective effort. Alex raises some really important points there about the environmental impact of supply chains and IT hardware. What are the most crucial issues a law firm should address in the supply chain? So it's, it's really interesting because uh, all organizations within the different industries have a different uh, footprint in terms of their supply chain and where the impacts come from. So when you're looking at their entire value chain, so scopes one, two, and three, if we're focusing in on the legal sector, from our experience, about 70 to 90% of emissions are within that scope three category. So the majority of that have also come from purchased goods and services with a large chunk of that being things like IT hardware, furniture, as well as any other services that are used. So in order to address this, the real best strategy is by purchasing less and purchasing things with a lower impact. The carbon footprint of an IT department is something that frequently surprises most office-based organisations. 
Why is this part of the carbon footprint so big? It's a tough one because essentially you need that physical hardware in order to work. I, I would say all of us have at least one piece of hardware, like a laptop, computer, monitor, screen that we use. So essentially what, we're still going to be buying this in the future. So what we need to be doing is making sure that going back to what I said previously, we're purchasing less and purchasing with lower impact. So this can be done by extending the lifespan of current equipment, which is the best option. But it can also be combined with reusing items where possible. So looking really internally about your procurement and reuse policies. But then secondly, there's an opportunity now to investigate refurbished equipment, which is a really good option and doesn't have a huge difference compared to new items. Okay, okay. And given that there are over 10,000 legal firms in the UK, presumably all with IT departments, is there anything you'd recommend to legal firms to reduce their carbon footprints? Yeah, definitely. So I think Baitwells, who's a client that we've worked with in the past, is a really good example of them looking into both their direct emissions, but also their supply chain. So one of the examples of things they've done is by implementing a supplier code of conduct, which is about engaging with their suppliers to request information on what they are doing to take action in terms of the climate and environment. Uh, In terms of the other areas within their supply chain and within their scope three, another major one that we've seen for, for law firms is business travel, especially flights. So we are really hopeful at Green Element that the pandemic has demonstrated that face-to-face meetings are not always required and things can be done virtually to the same effect. But where this fails, other options include switching flights for train journeys or reviewing where events such as partner conferences take place to be in the most accessible location for those involved. Yeah. So that just about wraps up our focus on the legal sector. If you'd like to know more or make a comment, Join our post-podcast discussion at sustainabilitysolved.org. In our next episode, we crack open a can and meet Louisa Zion from Toast Ale and focus on the food and beverage sector. The real difference with toast is not just what's in the beer, it's what we're trying to do more broadly. Using beer as uh, a message in a bottle or a message in a can uh, to raise awareness of the issues, working with other businesses to do that, but also funding systemic change and systemic change is what is really needed now. For that and much more, please join us for the next episode of Target 1.5. And in the meantime, join our online forum at sustainabilitysolved.org.